Hear the word of the Lord. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, Is this your own question, or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, So you are a king? Jesus responded, You say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, He is not guilty of any crime. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Someone was funny in the back. I appreciate that. I like humor. Uh, my name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors, and um, I'm excited about this morning. I'm excited about this sermon, and uh, I was looking at the bulletin before, and I was like, man, if there's something that you can't get on board with on the back of this bulletin, as my daddy would say, if that doesn't get your fire burning, you're working with wet wood. Uh, there's a lot happening, and uh, there's two things I want to point out that I'm, I'm particularly excited about. Well, really one on here and then one that I'm going to hold in my hand. Uh, the first one, that bottom left corner, you'll see uh, something called Sojourn Summer Academy. And uh, we've been spending a lot of time the last few years uh, trying to get to know our neighborhood and kind of walking around with our hands open saying, Lord, what would you have us do? And there's been a bunch of uh, open doors with the local school system. Uh, we host the high school baccalaureate. We feed the teachers. Uh, we do a leadership seminar thing for graduating seniors. Like, there's just lots of ways we've been invited into the life of the local school. Uh, we're renting out part of our space to a private school starting in the fall. And so there's all kinds of ways that God's giving us open doors into the education system. And a need that we kept hearing about was this kind of gap as kids are getting ready to go into first grade. Uh, and so... We've just kind of been praying and wondering. And a few months ago, Nathan Ivey, who uh, leads this organization called Seed to Oaks, he's a pastor at our Midtown campus. And uh, we started this organization a couple years ago called Seeds to Oaks from um, Isaiah, uh, this idea of being, becoming oaks of righteousness. And what they do is they come alongside the local church to try to help the church meet the needs of the neighborhood that they're in, wherever they are. So they help people do medical clinics. They help with job placement, with programs like Job One, and all this kind of great stuff to help the church be able to serve the neighborhoods that God has given to us. And they asked us a few months ago if we would be willing to be a pilot location for what they're calling Summer Academy. And it's a two-week-long, um, I don't know, school journey, I suppose, uh, to help kids get ready to go to school. It's based on national standards. It's in partnership with Campbellsville University. And uh, so there'll be teachers who are getting credit hours as they prepare to teach. They'll be certified actual teachers, not just training teachers. And it's for this first year, it's for five-year-olds and six-year-olds. And we're hoping to get 15 kids from our church that are five and six. So 30 kids total between five and six-year-olds, 15 from our church, 15 from our neighborhood. And there's all kinds of great things like you'll, your kids' uh, dominant learning style will be assessed. You'll get some tools to help uh, encourage your kid and get them ready. Uh, there'll be some basic skills. And the hope is that we'll 
this will be kind of a stopgap, a way that we'll help kids in the local schools get ready to go to school. And we hope to be a big asset to the, the local schools as the years go by. So that's coming next week, an info meeting about this, uh, where folks from Seed to Oaks will come and you'll get to learn more about the program. Uh, so if you have a five or six-year-old that you're interested in this in coming to this, I would encourage you to come. But if you know someone or someone in the neighborhood, uh, please let us know. Uh, so we're excited about that. And then second, uh, there's all kinds of pastors at Sojourn, our four Sojourn churches, there's about 40 pastors, and some of them do kind of crazy stuff. Uh, they, don't, they don't just write books, but they're, some of these guys are the guys that kind of write the book on something. You know how people are, oh, that's the book on this stuff. And one of those guys is a man named Greg Allison, who he's a world-renowned scholar. He gets flown all over the world to do stuff. He's at our East location, so I can brag on him a little bit. He's a professor at Southern Seminary, and dude is wicked smart, right? Like, he's, he's really smart. He writes big, thick books, and uh, he's got a new one that just came out. I'm not sure if it's actually out or if we're, like, early because we're his church. Um, it's called 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith, and uh, it's normally 30 bucks, and he's worked it out with his publisher, Baker Books, uh, which they usually do the smart books, where we're getting it at cost. So he doesn't, no one makes any money on this. You just get to buy it for 15 bucks. And we have, I think, 15 or 16 copies left. So uh, this kind of says, what are the core things we believe and true? What are, what are the big 50 here that, that we want to know about and that are true? And it's even cheaper than Amazon. So some of you might be looking at Amazon right now. You'll get it cheaper out there than in Amazon. Um, and it's around 30 bucks at most stores. So I encourage you to go pick that out. Uh, and we're talking about it today because it's coming out. And today you'll see on the front of your bulletin this big word, truth. Uh, so what we're doing right now, we started it last week when we talked about our mission as a church, reach, build, send, reach people with the gospel, build them up as the church, send them out into the world. And now we, we're gonna spend the next few weeks talking about what are the, the core values that make up who we are as a church? What are the things that are most important that will uh, shape you know, all, all that we do? And they're what's known as, I'm part of this intro right now is to prove to my dad I actually went to college. Uh, I had a philosophy degree. So where are my philosophy majors at? Exactly, right? <laughs> you all have real jobs. And so, you know, when you get a philosophy degree, it's pretty much musician or pastor. Those are your options. So um, the, the next three weeks, we're, we're talking about what uh, through human history has been known as the transcendentals. That's truth, beauty, goodness. Uh, what does it mean that they're the transcendentals? These are the things that apply to all people and all places across all time. So it doesn't kind of matter what race you are, what class you are, what culture you are. And uh, these are uh, three concepts or, or values that wherever humans have gathered, they've made decisions about these things, truth, beauty, and goodness. So what is truth? What makes something beautiful? What is good? And whenever we see a culture or a society reject those things or, or do what we see happening in our society, saying those things just don't exist, it's always resulted in destruction. Like it's always resulted in that organization, that society, those group of people crumbling. In our church, uh, truth, we tend to be truth people. We're Bible people. Uh, we preach the Bible every Sunday. We care a lot about doctrine. So on the one hand, we, we kind of love truth, but have you noticed, and this is at least in my opinion, how much more we love truth for other people as opposed to for ourselves, or how we kind of have this truth canon that we carry around aiming it at other people, but then when it gets pointed back to us, uh, not so much, right? Um, no one 
comes to a marriage and says, I really want to marry somebody that will point out all of my flaws consistently and regularly. <laughs> right? like, but we feel relatively comfortable pointing out what's wrong with somebody else, whether that's an individual or a group of people. Uh, those people, you know, they really fill in the blank. The problem with fill in the blank is that they tend to, we do this about denominations, about political parties, about anything you can label somebody with. A lot of us tend to be more comfortable saying what's wrong with those people. So I think we love truth, but we just would prefer it not to be pointed towards us and we would rather keep it pointed out there. Why is that? Uh, I think there's many reasons. Uh, A big one, I, I think in America and in the American church in particular, Uh, I would say we have an identity crisis on our hands. Uh, So what's your identity? It's that way that you answer, who am I? Um, How do I know who I am? How do I know that I'm valuable? How do I know that I have a place? And so I think a lot of us um, find ourselves feeling this pressure to prove ourselves or to be impressive, uh, to say, this is who I am, and this is how I know that you all love me or that I'm accepted in this place or that I belong in this place. And so we tend to use the truth to create some kind of image to make ourselves look some way to somebody else so that we can feel safe. So we have an identity crisis and think about what the truth does. Uh, The truth inherently at some point confronts us and challenges us. If we're willing to admit that something is true, it brings with it the possibility that it's not true for me or that I was wrong or that I need to change. And this is often very costly. So think about, you know, you made it through premarital counseling and now you are married. Um, There's exceptions to what I'm about to say for people with, you know, addictions and abusive situations. Um, But everyone I know who's in the kind of the first 10 years of marriage, uh, we have a secret that we keep. And that's that the big problem in my marriage is my spouse, right? You don't, don't amen it if you're here with your spouse, right? Most people, when they get married, are like, I was told that I was marrying this person, and then you live with them, <laughs> like, and you're around them all the time, and you're like, what have you done, right? And so the other person is the problem. So we build our list, right? We have this suspicion that they don't love us, or that they're rude, or that they're inconsiderate. And we start finding all of these reasons to prove that's right. And then at some choice moment, we unload all of our evidence on them, hoping that we can convince them of what a problem they are. Now, every healthy marriage I know, not every marriage I know, but every healthy marriage I know has had the same thing happen at some point. Uh, If you keep running that route, I guess, of gathering evidence and firing away, at some point, you will find yourself in a, a sterile room paying a lot of money to sit across from a counselor. Um, Maybe you're not with a therapist or a counselor. Maybe you're just sitting with a good friend. Maybe you're reading the Bible and it's starting to pierce you. And the same light bulb comes on. Uh, it's, It's when each person suddenly realizes, oh no, I'm the problem. You've had your gun pointed at the other person for so long. And then you wake up and realize, oh no, I'm the problem. It's not, just, it's not just my spouse, it's, it's me. And that's hard enough. Acknowledging what a problem you are in your own marriage is hard enough. But then the truth begins challenging you and says, you can acknowledge this and then 
if you want to live with this, you have to change. And it becomes very, very costly. When you deal with the truth personally, it always confronts and demands something of you. And this is why it can feel so scary. Have I been wrong this whole time? What would have happened if I had saw this earlier? What would have happened? Maybe I'm not really who I thought I was. What if they reject me now? What if they really know me? And I mean, who hasn't, even if you're not married, had that thought, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me, right? We all have this thought. So instead of living in the truth, most of us wield the truth like a weapon. We keep it pointed outside. And I would say most of us use it, not just any weapon, right? Not like brass knuckles. We use it kind of like a sniper rifle where we stay real, real far away and we take real precise shots and fire. Like say for instance, Facebook. You ever notice how you've got people that are like nice and friendly and then you get on Facebook and it's all of a sudden like they're mean and aggressive and intense. People in real life are just kind of nice and sweet, but then they become experts on the internet, experts on theology, experts on economics, experts on, I don't know, immigration, experts on racial reconciliation. You know what I mean? And then in, in a, why is that? We stand at a distance, we get out our long range rifles and we fire away, aiming the truth at everyone else. It's interesting for a group that claims to love truth so much. So, In this text in John 18 this morning, Jesus' life and the fate of the universe is on the line, right? Stakes are high here. He's being questioned by the governor, the man who gets to decide, at least so we would be led to believe, whether or not Jesus will live or die. And we have this very strange conversation around the idea of truth. And if, if we're willing this morning, if we're willing to let our defenses down, if just for, you know, 20 more minutes or so, I think we can learn a great deal about the truth and what will it mean for us to be grounded in the truth as a church. Uh, And if we're willing to get really crazy, we might start begin to answering, not just what will it look like for our church to be grounded in the truth, but what will it look like for me as an individual, as a person, to be grounded in the truth. So I want us to start by considering what is the place of truth? In other words, where does truth exist? Uh, Where does it exist? Um, And and so here's what I'm saying. Uh, The question that Pilate is asking Jesus, we could do a whole sermon on politics on this. I mean, this is like a beautiful picture of God's politics here in the sense of authority, power, uh, but you know, we'll save that for another time. I don't don't wanna get fired just yet. Uh, (laughs) You guys love it when I talk about politics, let me tell you. So he's saying, are you really a king here? Are you claiming authority here? Because that will be a real problem. Uh, I'm trying to keep these people under control. My boss is breathing down my neck and the emperors don't really like it when local people try to come into power. And so he's saying, are you claiming that you have authority here? And this is what Jesus says, starting in verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this world. I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. What's he really getting at here? Uh, you, can, you can tell by Pilate's response that he doesn't understand what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus isn't just saying like, yeah, I've got some political power here in the Middle East. Uh, he's saying my kingdom exists outside of this world. I don't just have authority here. I have all of the authority. I don't just have a little bit here. I'm not a geographic king. I'm actually the king of the universe, maker of heaven and earth and everything in it, right? Like he's claiming much greater authority than what Pilate is asking him about. And it says he's come into the world to testify to the truth. 
I've come in to bear witness to, to acknowledge what is true. So what does this tell us about truth? So first, and it's sad that we have to acknowledge this uh, or be real clear about this as a church. At first, it says that truth exists, right? It's a real thing. Uh, And for the last 60 years or so, our culture has slowly been disagreeing with that. And so you'll find things, people saying things like, well, as long as it's true for you, it's good for you. I'm just, I'm just trying to live into my personal truth. And Jesus is saying, I've come to testify to the truth. There is something that is true. Uh, second, it doesn't belong to us. It's not like Christians have this secret truth jug, and this is where we keep our truth. Uh, so listen, last week, we looked at Jesus's great mission, which is in the, rooted in the promise that all authority is his. He's in control. He's in charge wherever you go. All authority is his. And now he's saying he's come to testify to the truth. What this is telling us is that we don't get to decide what is true or not. We don't get to have this like conference where we decide, well, what will we agree with or not agree with? What is true? What is not true? Uh, Jesus is saying, truth belongs to me, okay? I'm the one who's decided what's true. It's not this human debate you guys get to have. Uh, And that's why the the honest Christian gets to have these wonderful worldviews, I guess, where we say all truth is God's truth, which means if something is true, it belongs to God. That's why Christians shouldn't be afraid of science or exploration. Like, do you know that for the first 1900 years or so of Christianity, like science was a Christian thing? You know, like that's where the discoveries came from. That's where the innovations came from. If all truth belongs to God, we shouldn't be worried that somebody's gonna find something out and all of a sudden disprove the existence of God or, or something like that. Uh, if, if you treat the truth like your personal possession, you will be blind to the truth. You'll hold on to this thing, you'll protect it like it's yours. And when something comes that confronts it or challenges it, you'll totally reject it. You won't be able to see it. So we have to see that truth doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to the Christian. Um, It's not our possession to hoard. So truth exists. It doesn't belong to us. And this is a little bit redundant, but it's important. It exists outside of us. Um, Truth is not something we conjure up. It is an, (laughs) philosophy degree time, it's an objective reality. Okay, what does that mean? It means the truth doesn't change person to person. It doesn't, truth is not concerned with your point of view. It's true or it's not true, right? That's what we're saying. It exists as an objective reality. Our learning something does not make it true. It's not like people floated around the planet until someone one day, on, you know, Newton was like, gravity! And then all of a sudden we all stuck to the earth, right? Like, we can discover something or or find language for something that was there all along, but learning something doesn't suddenly make it true. And so this is where we have these kind of two big broad categories. Here's what I'm saying before I get into this. Truth is more revelation than it is discovery. I mean, it's something that God has given to us, not something, we're not Indiana Jones who've gone out and we've discovered something amazing and new. Uh, We have this, I hate this category, it's called general revelation, (laughs) So you have general revelation and special revelation. General revelation means that God has revealed all kinds of truth to us in his creation. Uh, There's true things that can be found anywhere. What what does it mean maybe more practically? It means if a plane is crashing, if you're, you know, the pilot has a heart attack and you run up into the cockpit and you want to figure out how to land the plane, don't grab your Bible, grab the flight manual. You, You know what I mean? Like the Bible isn't necessarily going to tell you how to land an airplane. 
Or you'd probably get nervous, like if your oncologist started talking to you about the treatment plan, is like, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Chronicles 17 or something, right? Like the Bible isn't necessarily gonna talk about how to treat cancer or something like that. But God has revealed his truth about how nature works, how hum- human beings work all around us in creation. And then we have what's called special revelation. That's where God has revealed his character, his plan, how to be in relationship with him. And that's where the scriptures come in. So when we're talking about the place of truth, if, if it exists, it doesn't belong to us and it exists outside of us. That's just a long way of saying truth belongs to God. What is the place of truth? It's in the hands of God. And he's revealed much of that truth in his word. So as a church, we're not innovators. We're not game changers. We're Bible people, right? If you, want, if you have questions about God, that's pretty much what we deal with, okay? And we look for those answers in the scriptures. Uh, there's no secret ingredient here. Um, I, w- I hung out with a bunch of pastors last week and the question invariably comes up like, what's the strategy at Sojourn? And I'm like, well... We preach the gospel from the scriptures and we try to love one another. And like, God's done something great. It's like, yeah, 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 but what are you really doing? And it's like, no, 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 that is really it. Like, if you envision these like pastor meetings where we have this intense strategy for, like, it's just not there. Why is he doing something at this church and not at other churches? I have no, I have no idea, but that's the strategy. Like, we are a good old-fashioned Bible church. And again, this doesn't mean truth only exists in the Bible or that the Bible is the only book we should read, but the Bible is the clearest, most authoritative place that God's character and plan have been revealed. So to be a church rooted in the truth means we are a church that's rooted in the Bible. And then we're just grateful for all the other places that truth shows up. I mean, God is just speaking to us in all kinds of wonderful, beautiful places. The truth doesn't belong to us. It's not something we discover. It's revealed to us from God. So, that's a long introduction. Uh, and maybe you're saying here, like, I come to Sojourn because I like the truth, right? Like, the truth isn't necessarily a problem, arguing about whether or not it exists. The problem I see with us is much more so how do we embody it? What is the posture that we take when it comes to wielding the truth, if we can even say that? If we're stewards of truth, this thing that God has given to us, how do we act in light of what is true and not true. So three words I want us to think about when we think about what is the posture of truth? How does God want us to carry ourselves in light of the truth? The first word is conviction, conviction. And the fundies are like, yes, amen. We'll get, everyone's gonna be uncomfortable at some point, I promise you. Um, Conviction. So again, here, Jesus's life is on the line. The universe is on the line. And like, would you not just be a little bit tempted to fudge it? Like, can we spin this a little bit? I'm, I'm a king, but not like you think I am. I'm, I'm not trying to mess with your deal here, Pilate. Or your boss calls you in and, you know, I'll just tell a little white lie to keep my job. What does that even mean, a white lie? How is that even a thing? It's like, it's actually just a lie, right? Like, it's, it's a lie lie. And we'll talk about why that's a problem in a minute. Um, how many of us would be tempted to find a way out? This is what Jesus says, though. He says, so Pilate says, is, are you a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. Now think about this. With his life on the line, with the man who's making the call about will it be executed or not, Jesus is like, listen, man, if I wanted to, we, you would have a real problem on your hands. You'd have a real problem on your hands, right? My people, earlier, I don't know if this is still up. I decided not to do it, but I want to do it again. Yeah, 
So Jesus is talking to one of his disciples the night before, pulls out a sword and tries to whack a guy. And Jesus says, don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? Like, here's Jesus saying, listen, you guys, everybody be cool. You think that if I didn't want it to go this way, it wouldn't go this way? You don't think thousands of angels would show? One angel shows up and soldiers pass out. We see that at the resurrection. Like, like when angels show up, it's scary. Thousands of them showing up? Like, that wouldn't be much of a fight. Jesus is saying, if I, if I was at risk here, man, if this wasn't the plan, you would have a much bigger problem on your hands, Pilate. This is a picture of conviction, a steadfast commitment to what's true, or as Isaiah would describe Jesus, he says his face was set like flint towards Jerusalem, right? Like a stone in the wind, I will not be moved. Jesus doesn't try to spin what's true to make his life easier, He was a man of conviction. So listen, if truth doesn't belong to us, then it's not changed by our circumstances. Most of us, when life gets hard or something comes on the line, we start fudging with the truth. We find a way to spin it or or swing around it. To be grounded in the truth is to be a person of conviction. It means we stand on what's true, even with our life on the line. So to be a a church grounded in the truth means we are people of conviction. Truth exists, this is what's true, and we'll stand on it. Second word, honesty. To have a conviction of the truth means we speak with honesty, right? Jesus came full of grace and truth. Jesus would say, I am the truth. The words he spoke were always true. So simply, this means we don't lie, right? Stop lying, people. Um, and we'll talk about, you ever notice you can't be in relationships with liars? Do you think in the, in the Ten Commandments, God was like, let's find a new one. Don't lie. You know what I mean? Like, why did he say that? Some of you have been married to a liar. How does that go? How does it go when someone can't speak straight, can't speak, you just can't, it's not even a marriage. Like, you can't be friends with liars. Relationships break down. So, yeah, we need to be people who speak the truth but there's something much deeper than that too. It means we are honest about who we are. It means that we speak with vulnerability and transparency. It's it's putting your weak foot forward. To be honest isn't just true words come out of your mouth. It's to live like you know the truth doesn't belong to you. So we're honest with our words and we're honest about who we are. We let the truth shine on us. We don't hide. And just, man, I hope you have the courage to think about the ways that you, you can spin something or you can twist something to try to maintain this image that you're better than you are, your marriage is better than you are, your kids are better than they are. And I'm not talking, there's this weird thing in our church sometimes where it's, someone's like, I'm such a mess, and everyone's like, oh, he's so holy, right? Like there's this authenticity thing that's the, just this new mask that we play or this new mask we put up. I'm saying, do you know yourself well enough to know how rarely you're right? Um, to, to know your own biases. If you're the person that's like, I see the true, the Bible objectively, I come with no filters and no biases, you are totally blind to who you are. Every human who's ever read the Bible comes in with certain presuppositions, certain filters that affect the way we read it. And if you see that God owns the truth and he's giving it to us, then we can let our guard down, we can stop lying, we can stop hiding, and we can be honest about who we are. Conviction, honesty, and then finally, humility. Listen to what Jesus says to Pilate. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. Uh, This famous philosopher, Blaise Pascal, once said, uh, unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. 
Uh, there's an intimate relationship between love and truth, and you can't know it. You can't relate to it unless you love it. So to be a church rooted in the truth means we love the truth. Uh, and boy, is this tough for us. Uh, what does this not mean? It means that we don't love our position, theological or otherwise. We don't love our party. Uh, we don't love our platform or our, or our ideology. It means we love the truth, and we rejoice whenever truth is spoken. So if you put your defenses down and let the, the Bible read you a little bit, like at some point, you're going to read the Scriptures, and, and Jesus is going to sound a whole lot like a Republican. And, and then if you keep reading it, Jesus is going to sound a whole lot like a Democrat. And then the other times you read it, and you'd be like, I knew it. He was a free market capitalist. And then you'll come to another part and be like, oh no, Jesus is a socialist, right? Like, at some, you'll, you'll read over here and be like, I think Jesus is a pacifist and all violence is wrong. And then you'll keep reading, particularly towards the end of the book, and you'll be like, Jesus is like a, a bloody general who's gonna bring destruction on people. And we tend to camp out on, on one of those and then belittle and demean everybody else and, and take shots at them. And into that tension uh, where, where the Bible says, no, this is all true. And God looks at us, he's like, listen, y'all, my ways are not your ways. My, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You think God walks into the voting booth and he's stressed out about which lever to pull? So if, here's how you know you love a position or a platform more than you love the truth. So if you're a Republican, when the Democrats say something true and you blow up on them about it, that's a problem. If your guy does something that you're okay with that the previous guy did, you would not have been okay with. You see what I'm saying? And, and that, this is not a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. This is a human being issue. When, when we love something in service of ourselves more than we love what is true, what the truth actually is. So to be a people... Grounded in the truth means whenever truth is spoken, wherever it's found, we rejoice, even when it's pointed back at us. So listen, if the truth doesn't belong to us and exists outside of us, how do we wield it? How do we embody it? it like, it's got to be from a posture of dependence and neediness, aware of our own brokenness. If truth doesn't belong to you, if it's been given to you, if you're needy and dependent, then we must be a people who hold the truth with humility. Jesus, with his life on the line and the fate of the world in his hands, was still humble. He didn't wield the truth like a weapon. He didn't use it to crush people. Do you know it's possible to say true things and not be a jerk? Do you know that that one of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness? So, like, it's not that I'm mean or angry, I'm just right. No, you're not. Even here facing his death, Jesus used the truth as an invitation. Look at a few of Jesus' words together here and see if you can find a theme. So to Pilate, he says, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Isn't that interesting? Who's asking me this right now, Pilate? Do you, is this your question or is this what everyone else is asking you? You say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. 
And how does Pilate respond to this? You, you can see the struggle that he has because he looks at Jesus and he says, what is truth? And he walks away. You know, there's lots of debate about the tone of this, what's meant by this. Um, but to me, it seems really clear that he's not, this isn't a sincere question because he walks away. Uh, he's not waiting on response. So do you see what Jesus has done to him here? Pilate wants to talk big picture. Listen, man, are you who they say you are? Are you a king? And are you trying to claim some authority here? And what does Jesus say? He says, I'm more interested, Pilate, in what you have to say. He, I'm not so much looking for a public debate. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for a personal relationship with you. So, he just keeps coming back to Pilate. What, do you, what about you, Pilate? What do you say, Pilate? What do you say? For Jesus, truth is never an abstract principle. It's always personal invitation. Christianity is never an abstract concept or mere information. And I'm not saying there is no information in Christianity, but listen, like, are you old enough? Have you been a Christian long enough to know how inadequate information is? Here's what I mean. Um, so just say amen if you think God is sovereign. Amen, amen right? That's most of us. Right? We're getting nervous now. I won't, make, I won't make you say amen on this, but just answer in your spirit, right? Like, say amen to yourself if you ever struggle to sleep at night. So listen, if knowing that God was sovereign was enough, boy, would we sleep like babies. Like, boy, would we not worry about finances or elections or... Not because any of those things aren't important, but because God is sovereign, right? How many of us know that the gospel says we're loved and we're safe, and yet we're so riddled with anxiety, and we go into relationships so scared with our, our defenses up? Like, information is not nearly enough. Christianity is always and only an invitation to relationship. Jesus isn't concerned about his life here. He's concerned with Pilate. I'm not here to deal with the crowds, Pilate. I'm here to deal with you. We have business, man. What do you say? It's a personal invitation because at least in the world of Jesus, truth is a person. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. If you want to know true things, you must know me. And if you want to know me, you must love me. The fundamental question he's asking everyone to answer is who do you say I am? Not like, not like what does that denomination say? Not what does your pastor say? Not what does your church say? But who do you say? And for Jesus, the truth is not found in public platforms or places of power. It's not an earthly kingdom legislating right from wrong. For Jesus, the truth exists in relationship and it exists in service of relationship. It's not an arbitrary rule when God says, stop lying. Like, listen, if you're a liar and you know you're a liar, I bet you have no friends. Or at the very least, you walk into all of your relationships feeling so unknown. Why? Because you can't lie and be in a relationship. To be a church rooted in the truth means we wield it for the sake of relationship. And listen, this will take great wisdom to know what this means. How do we embody conviction, humility, honesty in our relationships? But listen, like, this is where the Bible is so good. Here's God's idea for what this looks like. And I will just say, have you ever noticed that the harshest language Jesus has is used for those who use the truth to divide, who, who wield the truth in such a way that it crushes people and hurts people and, and separates 
people. That's who Jesus was most upset with. Thankfully, we have a great verse to know what does this look like. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Think about that. How do we wield the truth? Well, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Do you use your words this way? This is the thing that's like, it's just so ridiculous. If you're like over 50 right now, I'm really sorry for what I have to say right now. Um, Do you use your social media this way? And I wish I could say, it's just this one guy. It's just this one lady. I'm going to go talk to her about it. Why is it that we have so many people that know how to be so aggressive and authoritative electronically, on Facebook, on Twitter, via email, but then they're so agreeable and friendly in person? There are real issues in the church, in our church, in the church abroad. There are things that really matter. But what would it look like for us to be a people that say, whenever a word comes out of my mouth, or it comes across my fingertips, I'm gonna use it to be good and helpful to build one another up. What, can you, this would be so revolutionary if you're like, every day, I'm gonna find five people and say something to them that's good, true, and beautiful. I'm gonna say something that's helpful for them, that makes them feel like, we can make it, right? Like, it's gonna be okay. What if we used our words to unify and build up Do you use the truth this way? And to take it just a little step further, like, can you see how Jesus has used his word this way with you? You think Jesus doesn't see the disconnect between your life and your speech? You don't think he sees the ongoing patterns of sin? He doesn't see the way that we're mean to one another and we critique one another and we tear each other down? And yet he sends us his word, He sends us his spirit. He sends us other Christians and he's patient with us and he woos us. Oh, how harsh the king of the universe could have been with us. But Jesus filled with truth, the embodiment of truth, on a mission to testify to the truth, wielded the truth for the sake of relationship with us. Pilate is trying to use the truth to find a way out. That that could keep him safe. I'm either gonna start a riot or I'm gonna get fired, and I wanna find a way to avoid all of this. He didn't wanna lose his job, didn't wanna start all this violence, so tell me something true so I can be safe. Is that not what we do? We pick and choose the truth that we wanna believe that fits with our position to try to keep ourselves safe. What did Jesus do? He stood on the truth, lived in light of the truth, testified the truth, wielded it from a posture of dependence and humility, and it cost him his life, but his life has secured our safety. Like the gospel announces that you don't have to hide anymore. It says you're safe and loved, not because you're right or you're wrong, but because Christ died and was raised. And that is just such a pressure relief. Like all of your worries about being impressive, of proving something, all of the what ifs that you hide behind. What if they reject me? What if they don't like me? What if I'm actually an idiot? Like all of that goes away if the gospel is true. How do you learn to live like that's true? Well, you put your weak foot forward. What if that was true? How would your marriage change if you knew God has freed you to admit you are wrong? 
How would you be different in your relationships if all the pressure you feel to prove yourself and impress others was gone? What would it feel like if you really could stop hiding? To love the truth means fundamentally that you love Jesus. So we come to him trying to believe this is really true, that we are safe and we are loved. And we learn to believe it even more by being a people grounded in the truth, putting our weak foot forward, being honest about who we are, wielding the truth for the sake of relationship, to be good and helpful and to encourage one another. We allow the word to be directed at us, not just others. Do you see all the implications if this is true? Here's how we know it's true. Jesus looked at his disciples. He took a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. The truth was broken for us. The wages of sin is death. Jesus absorbed the wages for you. You don't owe God anything anymore. You're not in debt to God anymore. The body of Christ was broken for you. Then he takes a cup of wine and he says, this is what seals your relationship with God. It's my blood shed for you. What is this saying? Nothing you do can take you out of my hands. You are safe. You are loved. Will we be a people of truth? Will we be a people of honesty? Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. Uh, we'll have stations in the back and a gluten-free station to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come participate as you're ready. Let's pray.